Well, good morning, church. It is great to worship you this morning. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Well, Christianity stands or falls on the historic truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. If it's just a myth, then the truth is we're wasting our time assembling this morning. I know that you've got better things to do than to come and to listen to me if Jesus did not really, truly, historically rise from the dead. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 actually says this. But if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, then this is an event that should transform our lives today. We should and must build our lives upon it. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. So Paul wants us to understand that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus are indeed a historical fact. It really happened. He is risen indeed. But can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the twelve disciples to actually see and touch and hear with your own ears? and speak with the risen Savior. These disciples of Jesus had experienced the lowest of lows after Jesus died. It, it appeared that their hopes and that their, their faith that they had exercised by following their Messiah these last three years had been in vain. But then Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to them in an absolutely convincing manner. They were sure of it. They had experienced His presence with their empirical senses. They, they heard Him speak, they saw Him standing right there in their midst, and they were able to actually touch Him. But there was one disciple named Thomas who wasn't in the room when Jesus first appeared to His disciples, and he doubted the veracity of their claim. Now I've got to say this, I think sometimes Thomas gets a bad rap. Right? We call him Doubting Thomas. I actually like this guy. Okay? I think Thomas was not a wishy-washy kind of guy at all. I think, I think he was a, maybe a little bit OCD even. I think he was like all in, all or nothing. Okay? And he was the guy who had said earlier when, when you know, Jesus went down to Jerusalem and it was dangerous and he knew there were people in Jerusalem who wanted to kill him, Thomas had said in exasperation, okay, let us go die with him then. He, he was all in, right? And, and, and so he had been disappointed, and he was not going to be disappointed again. So he went so far as to say, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and touch them, I will never believe. He wasn't wishy-washy, right? He was hot or cold. And so when Jesus appeared again a second time, in the room with the disciples, and Thomas was there with them, Jesus invited Thomas 
to come and personally investigate the marks in his hands. And of course, Thomas changes tune, right? So in John 20, we read verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. You get that? He was all in. People had not called Jesus God. They called him a lot of great things. Thomas was the one who said, my Lord and my God. Well, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So if you're here today and you believe in the risen Jesus, these words of Christ, of blessing, are for you. They're for you. You have not seen, but you believe. Now if we rewind the tape of Jesus' life and ministry for a couple years, uh, we, we go all the way back to John chapter four. And we've been going through John chapter uh, four together as a church family for the last few weeks, and we're gonna continue. And you may wonder, well, what does this text about these Samaritans have to do with the resurrection? Well, stay tuned. If you rewind that tape towards the beginning of, of his ministry, we actually meet a town of Samaritans who also believed in Christ without seeing. And they actually believed, this is our first point of our sermon, the Samaritans believed in him, first of all, because of a woman's testimony. So John chapter four, verse 39, as, as Pastor Barry just read for us, we read again, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he did, or he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Now, let me just give you a little bit of background about the Samaritans. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, uh, you, you've kind of heard more of the historical background, but let me just say that Jews did not like Samaritans, all right? The, the Jewish disciples of Jesus uh, would have felt like they were in a strange land when they were journeying through Samaria and really wouldn't wanted to talk to anybody or touch them because they viewed these people as half-breeds and heretics. Uh, they had, a, they had a, a form of religion that was an amalgamation between Judaism and basically Assyrian pagan worship and later Greek pagan worship. And so these were compromisers. These were turncoats. They were not people they wanted to hang out with at all. And so the point here is that it's the outsiders, it's the underdogs who believed in Jesus first. See, these Samaritans heard, first of all, the testimony of a woman and then later Jesus' own words, but they didn't witness all the miracles that the Jews had seen in Jerusalem just a couple chapters earlier. We, we read in the end of chapter two that, that there were Jews who saw all kinds of miracles, signs Jesus was doing in Jerusalem, and they believed, but then Jesus did not entrust himself to them because it was a half-hearted belief. It was a fair-weather faith. But these Samaritans received Jesus. In fact, they not only believed his words and received him, they, they invited him, please come stay with us. It reminds me of John chapter one, the introduction, James, uh, John's poetic and powerful introduction to his gospels where, where he says, he, that is Jesus, came to his own, that would be the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. 
but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And let me encourage us this morning, just because a term is familiar to you, do not forget the power and the incredibleness of, the, of these things. The fact that, that Jesus, God the Son who died, rose from the dead. That is an incredible belief. The fact that God would take human beings and adopt them into his family and that we could become sons and daughters of God, that is incredible. It's an incredible truth. Well, these Samaritans, I don't think, understood that much at first, but they provide for us an example of humble, genuine faith in Jesus. And what is even more striking to me is the fact that that they came to believe in Jesus and they they came to believe in Jesus' words, first of all, through the word of a socially ostracized woman. And frankly, this was a woman of ill repute who was coming back and proclaiming to them that Jesus had, 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 had said everything that she'd ever done, that he knew that he was a great prophet, and, and maybe even the Messiah. And, and they must have seen a change in her such that they came to listen and to believe in Jesus. And as we remember the story this morning of Christ's resurrection, it should not be lost on us that Jesus first appeared to women and gave them the responsibility, similar to that of the woman at the well, to bear witness of his resurrection. And, and these women lived in a day in which women were looked on, misogyny was present, and Jesus lifted them up as they were the initial heralds of the gospel. So let's look at the account of the resurrection in the, uh, that the writer Matthew has given us. Uh, let me invite you, we'll put the words up on the screen, but, but you can turn there with me if you like to Matthew chapter 28, verses one through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly away from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. These were the women. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Pastor Kent Hughes remarks 
on this passage. It is very significant that here, as in the other three gospels, Christ first appears to the woman Mary Magdalene. Not to an apostle, not to the great in society or in the church, but to a particular woman. Christ appeared first to one who in the culture of the time was oppressed, a woman who had known great sin. What a comfort it should be to us that Christ always comes first for the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5 through 3. That truth will never change, end quote. So the, the Samaritans believed because of a woman's testimony, and the Samaritans, our second point this morning is that they believe because of his word, that is Jesus' word. Now there is plenty of historical evidence for us to be confident today, 2,000 years or so later, that Jesus died on a Roman cross and that he rose triumphant from the grave. And let's consider some of that this morning. First of all, let's think about the response of the witnesses to the resurrection. Paul has already attested to Jesus' appearance to the apostles, but he provides more witnesses to the resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse six, he writes, after Jesus had appeared to the apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 500 witnesses, most of whom at that time are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul writes. Now I think it's important that we consider the reaction of these witnesses, these 500 plus witnesses. Now they have, the 12 got to spend most of the, more time than anybody else with the resurrected Christ, but he appeared to 500 people plus. And, and, and we need to consider how the, what, what kind of impact that had on them. What, what we see uh, when we think about the 12, as well as the rest, that they were transformed from cowards who, remember, I mean, most of them ran away at the cross. They were transformed from cowards to fearless martyrs. In other words, they really believed that Jesus was alive. And, and so did their spiritual progeny, those that they led to Christ, also really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. In fact, it was three centuries before Christians had any social benefit for believing that Jesus had risen from the dead. Christians for 300 years were persecuted for believing this until Constantine's conversion in 312 AD. And so when we see the actions and the life change of these witnesses, there, there's, there's no doubt that they believed it. They believed that that was the true risen Christ. They weren't faking it. Well, consider the sacrifices and the zeal of one of these witnesses. That would be the apostle Paul, who, who encountered Jesus through a vision he says, as, as one untimely born, um, he appeared to me. But Jesus appeared very viscerally to Paul at his conversion from Saul, persecutor of the church, to Paul, who later became a mighty apostle. And Paul, we know, 
Paul, we know, suffered all kinds of obstacles and persecutions and endured. Well, well, why? Are those the actions of a man who's fabricating and, and perpetuating a false story? People give their lives for causes that they believe in. They do not go to their death to perpetuate lies. In fact, according to church history, Doubting Thomas became a missionary to India. Went that far. All right, took the gospel to India and was, was martyred according to church history. We don't see this in the Bible, of course. But he was actually martyred by Hindu, Hindu, Hindu priests who were jealous because people were listening. As Blaise Pascal said, I believe the witnesses that get their throats cut. We believe that all of the apostles, almost all, uh, uh, except for, for John, who we think died in banishment, were martyred for their bold witness for the resurrected Christ. But let's also consider the testimony of Jesus to his own resurrection before the fact. The angel reminded both Marys in Matthew, Matthew's account, that Jesus had foretold his resurrection. The angel said in Matthew 28, 6, he is not here, for he is risen as he said. Now, multiple gospel writers record Jesus sharing with his disciples on several occasions that he was going to die, but that God would rise or raise him from the dead. And one of the most clear instances, though by no means the only instance, is in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, in which we read, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus prophesied his own resurrection. Now, now a skeptic could read this and certainly charge that the gospel writers all made these prophecies up when they wrote out their gospels. But you know what? I think it's extremely unlikely that these writers would be that sophisticated and that coordinated in an effort when they write four different gospels, okay, to actually think, to go back and invent prophecies from Jesus. Everything about this, everything that we read, including all of their failures, marks authenticity. In fact, I don't believe that you can just make this stuff up or that a person would make this stuff up. And as mentioned before, they would all be willing martyrs to cover up their lies. And con artists just don't do that. They don't give their lives to protect their cons. But let's consider the significant forensic evidence of the empty tomb. In, in, in Matthew's account, the angel invited both Marys in, in Matthew 28 verse 6, B, to come and, and see the place where he lay. In fact, the angel invited them into the tomb. Now, remember that the angel who had rolled the stone away didn't roll the stone away so that Jesus could get out. Jesus' resurrected body had power to, to move through material objects. He rolled the stone away so that these first eyewitnesses could see the evidence 
that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave. And that evidence was that the grave was empty. And and the grave is still empty. There's no body in there. And frankly, nobody's ever disagreed with that. So, So what are the options that skeptics might come up with for the proof of the empty tomb? Well, well, the first one goes right, right back to the beginning, uh, and we read about it in Matthew 28. Uh, uh, they, they said, well, the disciples came and stole the body. But let's think about the plausibility of that, right? That, that a couple disciples by night were able to come and overcome a Roman guard who, who, frankly, it was the death penalty if he fell asleep, okay? And then they managed to roll this big stone away. And then they would actually go all the way to their death to cover up for the lie that they had done. So others have, have and, and there, are, there are people out there who, who are skeptics who say this isn't plausible, that the disciples stole the body. And they, they, they've thought hard, what, what else can we come up with? Well, they've come up with something called the wrong grave theory. That is somehow uh, everybody went to the wrong grave, which was indeed empty, and the right grave Joseph of Arimathea's grave was just over there somewhere, uh, still sealed up with a a rotting body of Jesus in there, and and he's been lost to history. Well, there's plenty of problems with that theory. Um, First of all, everybody knew where Jesus had been laid. Um, It was quite the, there there were several different people involved in that. Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent rich man. But even if there had been a mistake somehow, Jerusalem was really not that big of a place. And you can be very sure that, that as the message of this resurrected uh, 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 Messiah spread, that the Jewish leaders as well as the Roman authorities, they had every reason and motivation to find the right grave and to produce a body. In fact, Jesus' body has been historically the most sought after body. People have, have tried and tried and tried throughout history to find the dead Jesus so they could disprove his resurrection. And the only other theory that I really know that is plausible is that Jesus, the Son of God, did rise from the dead, which is what I believe. Do you? But the main reason that I believe that Jesus rose from the dead is because the Bible tells me so. I believe that the Bible is God's revealed word to us. And it makes it unequivocally clear that Jesus is alive. I believe God's word. Just like the Samaritans believed Jesus's word without seeing all the miracles. And they are commended for that simple and wholehearted faith. Verse 41, John chapter four. And many more believed because of his word. Well, you might, you might say or think, well, if I could just go back in time, and if I could stand in that crowd of Samaritans, and if I could hear Jesus speak verbally, I too would believe him. But you know what? You don't need to. You know why? Because we have his word. He's given us his self-disclosure, his Word, and I hope you treasure it and that you read it daily. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we've looked at the Samaritans' 
uh, uh, faith in his word, the fact that they believed the very first messenger, the very first missionary, which was the woman at the well who came to their village and, and pointed, to, pointed to Jesus. But we also see here in, in, in verse 42 that the Samaritans believed that he is the savior of the world. So in verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. They understood. They got it that they were not the chosen nation. They were the outsiders, but they rejoiced that Jesus was not only the savior for the Jews, but he was the savior of the world. And they understood here, even before Jesus gave the great commission at the, at the, at the end of Matthew's gospel, right? Um, maybe about three years later, um, uh, they, they understood be, uh, that, that, that Jesus came not only for the Jews, but he came for all nationalities. Jesus had already said in John chapter 3, 16 to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, not, not just the Jewish nation, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And he would go on later and give his disciples these last words from Matthew 28, verse 18 through 19. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, maybe we need to remember this morning that we are one of those nations. We're among the nations, right? Christianity did not start here in America. In fact, we're on like the polar opposite, opposite side of the, of the earth, and it took many centuries before the gospel would come to our nation, after it had spread throughout the Middle East and, and Central Asia and, and, um, and Southern Europe, and then finally up to Northern Europe, finally the gospel came here, uh, came here to this land that has now become a nation. So we should remember that, that Jesus came for all the nations. And so let's, let's be sure that we're humble, that we uh, are bold, that we are courageous, and let's take the gospel, let's be part of taking the gospel to the nations, but let's make sure that we embrace the nations when they come here. In other words, let's, let's love the nations as Christ did. Just a couple weeks ago, it was a joy for my family to witness the baptism of two Afghan women right here in Niceville. Who would have thought that 10 years ago? You know what, God through, God works sovereignly through chaos to accomplish his plan, which is to redeem a people from every nation. And so let's look with, with, with gospel eyes at the nations. Let's certainly send out missionaries to, to tell the nations of the, of the cross and at the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. But let's keep our eyes open with anticipation when God brings the nations, other ethnic groups right here. Did you know the antidote to racism? It's the Great Commission. Do you believe 
that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The Christian faith stands or falls upon the historical truth of the resurrection. We must believe these truths to be saved. These truths that we sung about. We sung about, as we were singing, I believe, Psalm 24. We, we sung about God at war. And you may wonder, well, what, what does that mean, God in battle? Well, in the Old Testament, it certainly means God was there leading his people into physical battle in the promised land as they were driving out wicked nations that were worshiping demons and, and claiming a place to be a promised land for his covenant people. But, but God was also in battle at Gethsemane when Jesus bowed and, and wept and, and sweated tears of blood as he was in anguish facing the cross and choosing to overcome and choosing to, to go to his death, to go to the very punishment that our sins deserve so that we might be saved. The Lord is in battle as his people take this message throughout the world to every nation. We must believe his word that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead to be saved. Romans 10, 9 and, 11, 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. He is risen. And he is ready to save all who call out to him in faith. Let's pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us, the outsiders, the, the pagans, Lord, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on a Roman cross for all the nations, for the world. We thank you that he is risen from the grave, and, and it is a joy to celebrate that with brothers and sisters this morning. Give us his heart for the nations. Give us his heart for the Samaritans. And Lord, give us the heart of the Samaritans, humble and authentic and inquiring so that we might seek after you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't yet know Christ as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day that, that they would bow before him and that they would in simplicity call out to him to be their Savior. We pray in, in Christ's mighty name, amen.